With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas to Europe and the situation in Ukraine. Very excited to talk to one of our new friends. She's a new contributor with Young Voices, but she's done plenty of media before. She's a journalist and communications specialist. Uh, she is from Ukraine. She's currently in Poland. We're going to talk about all that. Tanya Rock, how are you, ma'am? Thank you so very much for your time today. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for your time and inviting me here. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm doing great. Hope you're well too. Yeah, we're doing well. Appreciate your time. Let's just start with you, though, for folks that haven't got to read up on you or are familiar with you. You've done more overseas media with BBC and things like this, TechCrunch. We'll talk about your previous things that you like to talk about. Obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed your life personally. Things like Mariupol is a place on a map and images on a screen, but that's home for you. Uh, give people a little bit of your background, where you come from, and why we're talking to you in Poland instead of where you grew up, where you're from, and why that means something very different to you than just us in the international audience hearing those words. All right. Uh, sounds great. So uh, as for the beginning, um, I, I was born in Mariupol, and I was living there most of my life. Uh, I moved to Kiev due to work reason last year, but unfortunately my family stayed there when war broke out in Ukraine. And that means that uh, they got stuck in the blockade of Mariupol for three and a half months. And since it was really a severe bombarding, there was no any ability to get in touch with them or to check what was going on in the city. So for me, it became very personal. I was trying to get in touch with them to find them and to get them out of the blockade during all this time. And to, to make it clear how bad it was, uh, you could not find any information about the people because they cut out the mobile connection. And all that was possible is to look through information in local chats and telegram to see the devastations that were taking place in a certain neighborhood. That's how you approximately could understand what was going on there. Later, uh, luckily, I managed to find them and to get them out. That's why we made it out of Ukraine and currently settled down in Poland. Also, during that time, I was uh, trying to help people who were getting out of the blockade. Thus, together with my colleagues, also journalists and media specialists, we started the online project. Uh, that was recording and correcting information and personal stories of people who made it out of the blockade. For folks that don't know, because you've been through this now, how accurate has been the coverage in Western media of all that? We're, you know, we're coming up on almost a year into this war now. Is the imaging and the reporting on it accurately depicting? Because obviously you can't fully show the horrific nature of this war how has the coverage been to the Western audience, do you think? Are they getting a good picture? Or are they getting an accurate picture of what's going on? I think that it generally depends on the country that we are talking about because media market is different for each uh, country. And that uh, also depends whether this is an independent media or this is a state-controlled media. Uh, when we talk about Western media, I can give examples uh, how certain things are covered um, in German media, for example, I think that wording is quite important so that journalists don't use the word in conflict because conflict is not war and war is exactly what is going on now. At the same time, I think that in countries that uh, previously were under the communist impact, the situation is more clear because people have also this historical memory and they remember how things were for them. And that's why you can also see that in the narratives. Uh, where journalists, media, and governments stand for Ukraine and support it fully and wholeheartedly. 
But also when we are talking about uh, the American media, I think that quite often journalists have the lack of local context. It doesn't mean that they spread misinformation or related, but it also means that they have to dig deeper on the context, on the historical reasons of this war and also uh, on uh, the ongoing situation. Yeah, Tanya Rack joining us. You just touched on it, but it seems like a small thing for us, the difference between saying war and saying conflict, um, even, you know, saying Ukraine or the Ukraine, the old Soviet designation of it. Little words like that, you know, to a foreign audience, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. But when you're dealing with a war that the propaganda war is just as important as the shooting war part of it, those kind of words and terminologies really, really matter, don't they? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that during these days, all wars are hybrid wars. That's why it is also necessary to understand that everything that goes on the Internet stays on the Internet and the tools of propaganda are quite powerful. That means that uh, war should be read also online. Uh, speaking about the recent cases of uh, uh, Russian propaganda that I saw on social media, uh, that were online campaigns against Ukraine. So I would specify on Poland. Uh, in Poland, uh, there was a recent campaign that was called Tonya Nasza Wojna, which means uh, that's not our war. And it started as a banner campaign uh, organized by the anti-war Polish movement, but basically it was a disguise uh, for the anti-Ukrainian and pro-Russian uh, campaign. It also became quite viral on Twitter and hit the top of Polish Twitter, uh, where people were standing for uh, deporting Ukrainians uh, back to Ukraine or also Russian narratives were spreading misinformation from so-called Department of Foreigners, uh, where they said that uh, Ukrainian man would be called to army and also there was a call to action on giving the information about Ukrainians settling down in Poland and recording that through QR codes. So these are small things, but it just re reminds that we have to fact check all the information, all the resources, all the numbers, and only after that to share it and write it to our informational space. Tanya Rack joining us. You just mentioned it, so let's get into it for folks that maybe aren't fully aware refugees is something that Putin specifically and Russia as a foreign policy has found a way to try to weaponize. And they try to use that as a tool. The refugee crisis out of Ukraine is so massive. You just mentioned it, though. Countries like Poland are really sharing the burden on this. This is just another front in the war, though. The propaganda and the politics surrounding refugees that is a direct reflection of the war, but it's a purposeful reflection. That's that's made to happen to cause further chaos, isn't it? Uh, definitely, yes. And I think that it, also, it is also necessary to highlight how refugees are labeled, how they are portrayed, and uh, what would happen after this war ends. Uh, due to the prognosis of the experts, war may last till 2024, 2025, and turn to a Cold War. But it also means that um, people would have to deal with the refugee crisis. Right now, there is approximately 6.5 million of Ukrainians who had to flee from country due to war. And uh, Poland is a country that received the biggest amount of refugees. So that also means that uh, people should go through a certain adaptation process, because other than that, uh, later there can be a great tool for Russian uh, narratives and Russian propaganda to blame and victimize refugees for economic problems, for social problems, for taking away workplaces uh, or uh, polls, paying taxes for that, which can also be of, the, of an issue. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done. Tanya Rack joining us. You're there with Poland. You're familiar with it. You've mentioned it. There's a lot of history there between Poland and Russia, obviously, the former Soviet Union and all that. Is that a piece of this story? Are people familiar with it, even though the politics of the moment, like the refugee crisis and the threat of Putin's aggression, how much does the history play into how Poland has become such a stark ally? And frankly, Poland's really been carrying the ball for most of the EU. They're out on point on most of this. How much does the history play into that? Because that is about a generation away now since the fall of the Iron Curtain. Is it a present thing that folks are thinking about or is it just the immediate threat? Or is there a combination of both those things that have made them such a staunch ally to the Ukrainian people? I would say that there are several factors to that. So first of all, of course, uh, people and population have historical memory. And if you walk across Warsaw, you can see the monuments uh, uh, that remind us about communist times, right? But at the same time, I think that it is also determined by the geopolitical situation because uh, Poland is basically neighboring to Belarus and uh, they're afraid that in case if uh, Ukraine loses this war, war can knock their own doors. So definitely there is no interest to the country to be directly involved into war. And uh, as a country, they have their own programs to solve, economical, social, and etc. But at the same time, it also uh, becomes a contributing factor where they support Ukraine and uh, help both with humanitarian aid with military aid and of course with placing and accepting refugees yeah tanya rock joining us what's the other side of that the ukrainian people i'm sure are keeping track of who their friends are here like they they've learned pretty quickly and and in a very real way who their friends are here poland obviously the united states the uk these other countries from the Ukrainian point of view, how is it keeping track of and marking, okay, these are our real allies. They've really been here for us when they needed to be. I think that it generally depends on the bubble as well, because of course there are countries who are more anti-Ukrainian and that is visible. But at the same time, we can also talk about a certain individual level and we can also talk about private donors and private help, which is quite often more efficient than a government uh, aid too. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, people who get to countries uh, that are Ukrainian allies, they feel the help, they feel the support from uh, civilians. And of course, they feel it in terms of how they're praised, how they're treated, and the social narratives that are used in those particular countries. I can speak about Poland, and I know that lots uh, of people moved here, particularly in Warsaw. You can uh, quite often, often you can hear Ukrainian speech uh, on the streets, and that just shows that uh, the amount of people is higher than uh, expected. And I think that uh, it also shifts the cultural narrative, the social agenda in Poland, and we can also uh, just weight of uh, what happened long term in that and how the narrative would be, would be shifted yeah tanya rock joining us let's talk about another country though that hasn't been quite as staunch as poland a lot of talk about germany kind of back and forth again complicated history with russia very complicated history with poland a uh, new chancellor and olaf schultz kind of been halfway in halfway out Besides just the politics of it, when you see the war in Ukraine being used as part of the larger geopolitical uh, situation, obviously that's going to be frustrating to see it. But how does it play just seeing that, hey, you know, you have your country being invaded, but it's kind of politics as usual for a lot of folks, even folks that are supposedly allies. That's got to be tough to watch just on a personal level. And then the politics get really complicated on it. Uh, it is complicated and, uh, of course, there is this recent issue and a certain scandal uh, with Leopard tanks 
because of course in the beginning they promised to uh, supply Ukraine with 88 tanks, but at the same time there is uh, a difficulty with uh, giving them as a military aid due to uh, the need to repair them, but then also it is prolonged uh, since you need to get the weapon for those tanks and the details that are used for those tanks, they are no longer produced. And of course, we can see that from economical, geopolitical uh, aspect, Germany is also trying not to be very rough in their conclusions. And uh, I hope that that does not sound rough, but to sit on both chairs without spoiling uh, the diplomatic relations with both countries. Uh, but it is what it is. Yeah, Tanya Rock joining us. Let's talk about this this way, though. Two, three years ago, you weren't planning on sitting here talking to an American media audience about the war in your own country. That wasn't part of your life plan, right? You were you know, working in tech stuff. You were doing these things. You have an entire generation of folks like you from Ukraine now. This will be probably the defining moment in their life in a lot of ways. For somebody that hasn't been through that, how has that changed your life? It's not just career and, you know, going to university and career and what am I going to do with my life? It's how do we survive? Am I going to have a country? How do we do these things? Try to explain that to somebody because we just see the headlines. There's millions of folks just like you. Your whole life has been upended by this conflict. How does that affect you? How does that change your view on things? Just try to explain that to those of us that just see this on TV. So I think that war changes your mind once and forever. First of all, you become more radical in your thoughts. You see world more black and white without gray shadows. And of course, once you experience war, you, as trivial as it may sound, you understand how precious life can be and that it can end up quite soon and quite easy. That's why you started to appreciate each moment. When it comes uh, to the position uh, of you, or um, when, it, when it comes to a personal position as a citizen, it just that reminds uh, that you cannot be apolitical as some of people used to be. Uh, and right now, when I hear that people are saying something like that, I don't trust them because they're still in the context. They just don't realize it. And all the political agenda, all the things that are going on on the global arena, they still impact them. It's just that they're not completely aware about them. It also changed my perspective on the things that I find valuable and the things that I work on. Right now, I would like to dedicate my life to more social projects and to civil activities that that matter, that bring difference, that are also connected with my country, with supporting it, rebuilding it. It does not matter whether I continue working with Ukrainian uh, projects, clients, businesses, and I help uh, them to grow and to survive during these war times. Or it's uh, more about nonprofit sector, where I also work with organizations that uh, are providing help to my country or directly with people who would like to provide help to my country or to a certain level to help people who got into difficult situations because of war because war is not something you choose but war is also not about the death it's a certain way of life and you have to adjust to it and to make your living despite all those uh, obstacles and circumstances Tanya Rock joining us. One of those ways that's overcome that's become very apparent, and you know, you were kind of in this field already, but like you said, it probably focused you. The technology aspect of this conflict and the war and the invasion and what the Ukrainian people have been through. This has really been so important because the Ukrainian people have really been able to almost voice themselves in a way. They've been able to present their side. They've been able to be active participants in the propaganda war through the technology. How important has things, you mentioned Telegram before, 
social media, Western allies that um, promote and send out stuff once it gets out. How important has the technology been for the Ukrainian people in winning the propaganda war and keeping their allies informed and getting their own voice out there to the wider world? I think that uh, it's a great contribution to leading the information war because world is not world is uh, developing digitally and thus for example recently uh, there was a project that was data based and data oriented and uh, with the help of the artificial intelligence it allows to get the main narratives uh, that are praised in Russian media to determine them and to uh, combat fake information. Then also it is about working with Russian audience online and to explain them how things are. Of course, it can be bubbled as in each authoritarian state and sometimes it is really difficult to understand what civilians think and what's in their mind and how to find out the truth. But it does not mean that you don't have uh, to dodge on this audience. You have to explain. And when you explain, you can achieve certain results. Other than that, of course, there are driven data-driven oriented solutions that allow to spread the messages that are crucial, that uh, are efficient in uh, communicating our Western allies and etc. And uh, a small note on that too. Recently, there was a digital campaign uh, that was called Leopards. And it was quite um, simple, but it was efficient. There was a social media campaign where people had to take a picture uh, in clothes uh, or uh, accessorizes with Leoprints with the hashtag give us Leopards. It got quite viral and uh, it it hit uh, top news in Western media too, which is also a small but a contributing factor. Tanya Rack, it's got to be hard, but it's something you know I've tried to do. Whether it's Russia or China or any of these really brutal dictatorships, it's different because you know your country was invaded. How do you separate the Russian people and Putin and the folks that run the country? Obviously, there's overlap. There's Russians that support him. But there are some that probably don't want this, that still want more freedom, that don't want to be involved in this. How do you parse it out as somebody that's directly involved in this? This is a big issue that Ukrainian society uh, is being polarized at. I'm trying to judge people not based on their nationality, but uh, on the principles of individualism. However, I think that there is a huge problem that quite often Russian civilians think that they're apolitical and that, of course, we, we did not start this war, we didn't choose that war, but it does not look like they're doing something to stop or oppose that. Again, I cannot uh, tell you clearly how the situation for them is right now because Russia is low-key isolated now and it's hard to understand what's going on in the society without get, getting uh, a particular data-driven report. But um, I'm also trying to judge people by their actions. And so far in my bubble, there are people of Russian origin, Russian citizens who uh, are clear on their positions and who do bold actions uh, in supporting Ukraine. When we speak about people who flee from war, it is also quite debatable because from one hand, those people might be um, might might oppose but silently war but from the other hand there can be just those people who would like to avoid the conscription and thus they flee so we cannot define who really stands what for and this is one of the big problems when communicating things to russian society too yeah tanya rack joining us for an outside observer like me it's easy to say these things but you know, this is a clear cut war of aggression. It's an illegal war. It's a brutal war. It's a war against a specific people group, Ukraine in this case. To me, this this very much cuts to the basics of big words we use like freedom. How do you apply it, though? Because, you know, you were already talking about things like freedom in your own work and you used it in other things. To go back to where we started, war focuses things, war changes things. I have to think that applying things like freedom now, like freedom to write, freedom of speech, freedom of press, you just mentioned it, the situation in Russia. We talk about a war of aggression. This really is the court of freedom. Like, do these people have a right to exist or not? And that's the core of this. 
how do you get that message out to folks who just see it as, oh, it's another war of people somewhere else that I don't understand our language and I don't understand these places on the map? Is it personalizing it? Is it telling the stories of the Ukraine people? Is it telling about the brutality? How do we tell this story better that, no, this stuff really matters in a big picture way if you care about freedom? I think that all stories um, become more personalized these days because from the Western perspective, if you are sitting somewhere in the office on the opposite part of the world, of course, you can care on a certain level because if you are not sociopathic, you wouldn't like people to die. You wouldn't like war to break out in any part of the world. But do you really care? No, because it does not impact your life directly. But if we want to communicate efficiently, we should not speak only with numbers because, you know, a death of a particular person is a tragedy and deaths of many people is just statistics. So in my mind, we need to personalize these stories. So to tell people what happened to this woman in Irpeng or to that man in Bucha, because that's how people sympathize with those stories. When we talk about freedom, we need to understand that this is, without using big words, the, the fight for freedom, the right uh, of Ukraine to exist as an independent state. And uh, also without using big words, again, this is also um, being a shield to other countries, to neighboring countries. And that's why it is necessary to speak it out loud and to emphasize that Ukraine needs world support these days too. Yeah, Tanya Rack, tell folks where they can follow you and keep up with you. I really appreciate your time on Hertel. We're going to have you back hopefully soon. We're glad uh, you and your family are safe for now, but obviously you have lots of family and friends that are still there. How can people follow you, keep up with you, and tell folks what you have going on until we get you back on the program again? The best way to contact me is to follow me on Twitter. My handle is uh, Tanya Arak, the same as my name. And I would be glad to stay in touch and to discuss things in person, privately, and always open to the discussion. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It was a pleasure to talking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, thank you for the time. No, it's not the easiest topic to talk about, but it's important. And we appreciate you greatly and look forward to having you back soon. Tanya Rack, thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, another one of our friends hadn't been around a while, but he's busy. He's doing that grad school thing. Uh, but thrilled to have him back. Daniel Chan Contreras, how are you, my friend? Good to talk to you again. Oh, I'm doing great, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. Thrilled to have you. I, I reached out to you and, and hunted you down because I wanted to talk about something. Look, we're going into an election cycle. The election cycle has a little uh, side narrative that's been going for a while about Spanish-speaking voters. Uh, the way they're changing, the demographic is changing. The Republicans have made some gains, especially places like South Florida, the Rio Grande Valley. People are talking about these sorts of gains and changes. It's become we saw the demographics from the census. We know this is not only the fastest growing demographic in America. It's also diversifying demographic in America, which is an important point to point out too. Yeah. Spanish speaking media in America has never been bigger. But then when I actually look at it and I listen to it and I don't speak the language you do, so you help me out here. When I translate it and try to understand it, it's amazing to me that these are a lot of the same folks, but that's covered differently. The point of views differently. It's almost like a whole different world, even though a lot of these news organizations have the same parent companies. Mm. There's a disconnect there. Walk people through that a little bit, because I think we're talking about Spanish speaking folks and how they're becoming a force in politics. But when they're talking amongst themselves in media that's for them, it's almost like a parallel world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the thing about uh, the, the challenge, I would say, uh, to understand Spanish-speaking markets and Spanish-speaking um, voters, of course, it's that, uh, I mean, the only thing that we have in common is we speak Spanish. But other than that, uh, it's very, it's a very diverse and very different, very different perspective. And that, of course, shows 
when you look at uh, the major, you know, uh, Spanish-speaking networks, when you take, of course, the, the usual Univision, Telemundo, which tend to be more left-leaning, um, you see that that disconnect, and you also see how uh, the the attempts sometimes of English-speaking um, people to try to impose their their narrative of ways of seeing things. Uh, when they try to do that in Univision, in Telemundo, or in other media, it doesn't necessarily resonate in the same way, because when you when we talk about Spanish uh, in Spanish media outlets, there's a lot of subcultures, there's a lot of um, con uh, societal cultural cues, basically, um, that that don't resonate. Then when you when you try to import um, uh, just English speaking media. Uh, news just, just doesn't resonate, right? They're trying to talk about it in, with Cuban-American community in South Florida, the Venezuelan-American community um, in, in Texas, or, or the Mexican-American community in California. Um, you need to understand that, that little social, societal context to, to actually uh, how they think and actually how they process news. Yeah, and uh, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. I don't want to gloss over it because you just hit on it. There's so much diversity in the Spanish-speaking community. Look, even, somebody like me, we can sit on paper and look, Oh, well, a Venezuelan refugee that's speaking uh, Spanish and a Cuban uh, refugee or the diaspora that's in South, you would think they would have a lot in common, but just because they both are fleeing dictatorships, they have a lot of cultural differences. So communicating to them, even though they have a similar background coming to America, very, very different way to reach out to those communities. And I'm just picking those two. You could pick any other country you want it. Look, we're going to have more and more folks coming out of Mexico with the violence there. Somebody from Colombia isn't going to be the same as Argentina, even though they, you know, to an outsider like us, those would be more similar. That's really where the challenges start coming in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 100% correct. Um, and, and I think that's one of the issues that I think in general, um, English-speaking media and English-speaking political, political analysts and, and whatnot, have improved a little bit. I mean, uh, every time I hear, at least they say, well, you know, it's different. They're, they're not all the same, uh, which I think is important. But yeah, I mean, it is 100% a challenge. And when you see, when you see on the on the Spanish media outlets and the way that they talk about any news, um, it's it's very, it's different than in English speaking outlets. Also, there's a lot more emphasis on, well, at least right now, because we're not necessarily 100% in election mode right now. We'll be there like in a few, in a while. Um, the, the, although the, the news media cycle is a little bit slower right now uh, because there's not an, an impending election right now, um, you can see the differences, uh, especially in the just on the topics we they, they cover. Even when you talk about non-political things like entertainment, sports, it's completely different. I mean, we talk about football, well, soccer, not not um, not American football, or yeah, well, not American football in a line that one. Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. That's an important point because I think something that gets lost. Look, I've, I've been doing this politics things for a little while now. When you talk about outreach to a group, they just don't want constant politics. That's why we we call our show Culture and Politics. You got to mix it up a little bit. People just getting up. I imagine it's the same thing in the Spanish-speaking media, but especially for those English outlets or English minority candidates that are trying to do, quote-unquote, outreach. If you don't mix in some of that culture stuff, if you don't – look, I've lived in a foreign country before a couple times – you, you got to give them a little something to show you care, right? You got to give them yeah. a little cultural thing. You don't have to speak the language, but you better throw a word or two in there somewhere to show you're trying, that kind of stuff. You can't just show up at political time with just a political message. That ain't going to work. You got to mix in some of that culture stuff. You got to show some effort in there too, right? Man, yeah, 100% correct. Um, you need to understand the cultural side, side guess. Uh, cultural is it's important part of politics because um, if you want at the end, at the end of the day, when you're going to vote, you want to have someone that understands you, that at least talks the same way you, you do, or like understands your, your not only uh, policy struggles, but also just you know the way you, you, you interact. You know, you want to have someone relatable, and and culture and sports is really important. And actually, this is really important. Uh, I would say it's completely non-political, but a good, an interesting way of seeing the difference between Spanish-speaking media and, and Anglo media um, is just in in the way that I don't know if you have heard like. This was a whole thing over Shakira and, and her former whatever. The whole thing, I mean, it's it's just annoying to me, but it was a huge deal in every single Spanish-speaking media outlet and social media and just hearing my parents talk about that constantly. Um, and it was a huge news for like two weeks, two whole weeks. It was annoying, but but it was a huge thing. I mean, everyone was talking about it, and every single media was talking about it, Spanish speaking. But you go to maybe um, English speaking, it's not the same relevance uh, because it's just not the same. The same um, you don't have. I mean, uh, regular uh, New York Times 
reader will not care that much about whatever what's going on with Shakira and Piquet, but um, I'll, I'll, a reader from, from Miami or, or Houston probably will. It's interesting you bring that up because it brings up one of the oldest parts of this when it comes to North and South America and Europe. He's a Spanish soccer star. He's a big time Spanish soccer star. So there's always been this thing and you explain it better than I am. I'm not going to get too far into it. You wait as far as you want to go. Spanish, the language, the folks in Spain get a little touchy about such things. The folks in South America, the folks in Mexico, that that's a real thing. But that was one of the things that, oh, all of a sudden, both sides of the Atlantic there are talking about the same thing. But that's why, because he was such a huge soccer star. And, of course, it's Shakira. Who doesn't want to talk about Shakira? But that was one of those things. You want to talk about checking off all the boxes for a language group. That one did it. Well, yeah, I mean, 100%. And so that's an, uh, you talk about that. It's an interesting point. Uh, of course, Spain is very different. Uh, European country, uh, different history and whatnot. But we do share a lot of societal and, and cultural um side guys and, and cultural issues uh latin america hispanic american and spain music sports wise um sometimes even like the politics of it, it that you hear it and you can see some echoes between the spain spain and and, and the, the new world um so that's a very interesting point and actually that now that you brought it up uh that even if um just completely different societal context and economic context and political context we the, the, just this this the mere fact that we speak the same language uh, brings some common things. Well, it's like American and, and the Brits, I'm pretty sure as well, right? Yeah, I'm sure it is too, Daniel Chan Contreras. All right, you do do international affairs and foreign policy. When we talk about immigration in America, I think I think most Americans make one big mistake, and the media is really bad about this. We get really myopic about it. It's It's almost like the immigration problem starts at the border and then comes inward. We don't do a great job of talking about all the chains of events from the border outwards to all these other countries that are affecting this. The new policies that are being discussed and debated, a lot of them are starting to shift the focus. We know President Trump kind of started this train with the hold in Mexico policy, trying to keep the people coming from South America and Central America in Mexico, the Biden. We can debate all that stuff. I think that's one of the big holes here is we're acting like we can just hold the wall like it's the Alamo and nothing's going to happen. And that's not how this works. There, This is a bigger problem than just our borders and just trying to treat it like it's just something we're going to fix in and of ourselves. We're going to be in a doom loop on this thing, aren't we? I mean, yes. Uh, one of the, the big points is that this migration wave crisis, especially the parole program that's been all around the news, all doing, the, doing the rounds, it's not the same type of migration that America has been used over the last... Uh, 30 years right usually you talk about well mexico you talk about uh central american countries like um like honduras like guatemala like the solar people fleeing violence uh, but now we're talking about like, these thirty thousand per month program which is now on, on the courts on this lawsuit it's about it's venezuela nicaragua cuba and uh haiti right with the exception of haiti haiti's a bit of a different kind of worms but as well cuba and nicaragua have kind of the same issue right is you have a communist or socialist dictatorship uh that has created um, an immense amount of political, social, and economic pain in their countries and people just fleeing. Um, and the United States is just now the end of receiving that that migration flow. So it is a different policy context. It is a different political uh, solution, of course, to this specific uh, border issue, border problem, than uh, the ones we faced 15, years, uh, 15 to 20 years ago. And it's important for policymakers to take that into account. The problem is, I think, is that we're not, I mean, Americans are not uh, taking that into account. Uh, there's not a real policy decision, a rational, coherent policy decision. It's just President Biden trying to do something um, halfway, then the court saying that he can't do it. And then we have some way in the middle where the program is not implemented, but it's not also completely eliminated and just leave a lot of people uh, in south, in, in the south, in, in the border, in border towns, and the migrants just up in the air. Yeah, Daniel Chan Contreras. This goes back to what we started talking about with the Spanish-speaking media, though. 
when you talk to these migrants, when you see the foreign Spanish speaking press elsewhere, they all say the border is open. But the reason they're saying that that's not coming at it. Look, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. The sequence of events is the dialogue. And we've got this now. There's reporting on this there. This is mainstream stuff. When you get south of the border, they're hearing it. And then all the Americans are going, well, no, the border's not open. Our discourse on it, even if you're just saying our border is open against the policies of the current government as a conservative or whatever, saying our borders are open. When that gets to the Spanish speaking media and overseas media for other people groups as well, all they heard is the border is open part. They didn't hear the part about it being an outer. So whether it's President Biden saying it in his campaigning or somebody against the border policies saying the border is open, that's the message that those folks are getting. So when they're saying we're told the border is open, they're telling you the truth. It goes back to that media and the language change and how things are covered, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and there's uh, a couple of things I want, would like to add. I mean, you're 100% right. And uh, there's a couple of things. First, of course, people also you know, have relatives, and they know people, and they know people who crossed the border, and they know people who did the trip, and they know people who tried with the coyotes and all that kind of stuff. And they'll say, well, you know, once you get here, you can whatever you want. And, and uh, the, you know, the word of mouth spreads, even if... Uh, Kamala Harris goes to Guatemala and says, do not come, whatever. Um, if you have a friend that actually went there, you'll say, well, you know what, I, you know, I'll try it. I'll do my, I'll, I'll take the risks. That's one thing. And the other thing important as well is that this is um, a lot of, there's an increasing sense within uh, Spanish America, at least I will tell Venezuela, right, which is the, the realm we have some experience on. Uh, we also consume a lot of American media, right? We, a lot of Venezuelans speak English. A lot of journalists speak English, so they consume American media both from the right and, and from the left, I would say, in a regular basis. And that also, um, you know, shapes the way uh, you write about these types of stories, right? So when 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 Fox News or when CNN says, well, the border is open or the border is not open or whatever, uh, that's not only been heard and in, in America, but it's also been heard in, in Latin America. It's also been heard in Venezuela. It's also been heard in 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 other countries where people sometimes have access to this type of media, uh, especially through social media, they speak English and they can, th that also shapes their opinions and say, well, you know, that's how the way they're thinking, that's the way they are talking about it. And uh, that's what we'll, we'll report it and we'll talk about it here. So that's a really an interesting point. That's not only um, American, Anglo media, it's of course the main target audience is of course Americans, uh, but it's also uh, this type of peripheral audience that understands English and that shapes the way we talk about American politics and so we talk about American policy, which is in this case the most important. Yeah, Daniel Contreras. Um, we're coming up on this political season. We've already mentioned it briefly. How is this going to get covered by the Spanish speaking media? And again, it's very diverse because all these different countries are going to have their own different spins on it. They've all, you know, Venezuela media is going to have a very distinctive look on it compared to Colombia media or whoever because of the political situation. When they start covering our election cycle from the outside what are they focusing on because they're probably not real deep into the partisanship and the parties and all that stuff they're probably onto the bigger picture ideas what's a couple of the top line things that spanish media from outside the country is going to be covering that's going to filter through those relatives and filter through the folks that are here that might actually be voting because look y'all talk to family just like everybody else does right they're going to talk word of mouth is more powerful than any media that's ever been invented yet because basically that's what social media is, right? It's word of mouth. What's a couple of the top line items that they're going to be covering kind of from the outside that might actually trickle back in here? Well, uh, as you as you said, okay, rightfully, um, foreign media will not, of course, know the all the details and all the specifics and the mechanics about uh, American politics. So what they'll try and what they usually do um, is to go a little bit with, the, I wouldn't say caricatures, with a little bit of the stereotypes in, in, in both parties. Like, well, you know, the Republicans believe this, the Democrats believe this, because that's like common knowledge or like the popular image. So that's what they'll transmit back home. Um, of course, they'll talk a lot of foreign policy. Well, that, that depends, of course, in, in each country. I'm sure there's some countries that will 
uh, care a bit more about the foreign policy part of the of the candidates and, and the parties than than others. But I'm gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. One of the big issues right now, and that's at least how it was the 2020 2016 coverage, is of course if, if Trump's gonna run or not. If Trump, it's a uh, it's a media personality that transcends, I would say, language barriers. It's a very interesting story. So a lot of media outlets will will try to cover that. Uh, if he ends up being the nominee in 2024, it's gonna be you know oh you know Biden Trump rematches. That's gonna it's gonna be more like in a personality type of narrative. If Trump's not the nominee, then probably I'll say. They'll go more to the well, you know, Republicans and they add all the like stereotypes of Republicans. Or, like not stereotypes, because not that they're completely true. And Democrats, all these stereotypes, again, not not completely true. Um, and just present that to to the people, people back home. Yeah, Daniel Chan Contreras. All right, let's go the other direction on this. We already know that they look, they've got so much campaign money on these presidential races now, they literally can't spend it all on advertising. There's going to be a lot of people making a lot of money on Hispanic outreach, quote unquote, Hispanic outreach. What's actually effective and what's not when it comes to commercial TV spots, whatever? A lot of people are going to talk about it like a buzzword practically when you sit down to the TV and actually see it or the web app or whatever. What actually works? What actually cuts through? And what is going to come off as an actual outreach chance and not just, oh, they're just trying to get us to vote for them? Because that's the same problem no matter what language you do it in, right? Well, I mean, yes. Uh, I'm not an expert in campaign uh, campaign uh, messaging uh, yet. Uh, hopefully, maybe in the future, I'll be. And we'll talk about it. But um, what I will say in like general rule of thumb, of course, is that the the, the the people who write the ad, the people who produce the ad, they know the culture they're talking about. I mean, they know the target audience that they're talking about. They they actually have some real uh, grassroots connections with it. Uh, they talk the way Cuban Americans talk, and they're like it's like second nature. Basically, they really understand that culture of uh, Cuban Americans, Venezuelan Americans, Mexican Americans, whatever. What what tell you right? And um, so people don't get it like cringe, right? Well, one of the worst things you can do is like when you watch a Democratic presidential debate and see the typical random presidential candidate trying to speak spanish which just comes awful and just cringe but don't do that ever again uh that's one one of the things but i think that some people are doing really good jobs uh i know giancarlo sopo he's a conservative um strategist for for hispanic he does uh, terrific jobs because he does that right he he talks he knows the people he's talking about he's talking to and talks in the way that that goes to their cultural um issues and their cultural gigs and and cues and that way it resonates. it resonates yeah we talk about things like kitchen table issues right like basic stuff does a lot of that translate pretty much one for one i would imagine it uh, things like you know your job your kids education better life fuel prices food prices i would imagine that stuff all translates there's probably some cultural ways to discuss it specifically but when we talk about kitchen table issues in politics and retail politics, a lot of the principles are probably pretty close, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, when gas is up, uh, you can say even a thousand languages, it's the same thing, gas is up, <laughs> right? Because uh, your your bank account goes down and uh, that, that, that those type of issues that go pretty much the same. The way you package them may be a bit different. You can use some words and some specific things that, that resonate a little bit more. But yeah, kitchen table issues are pretty much think that that's one thing that's pretty much universal uh prices go up and people get, get really mad and i mean that's just human nature that's traditional traditional retail politics of it yeah that decimal point is a universal language everybody knows when you start putting zeros behind it whether what that means right exactly. daniel chank and Harris, always enjoy the conversation my friend appreciate the insight let folks know what you got going on it's been a little while since we've seen you update them all let them know where to find you follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on hertel again my friend yeah, of course. Uh, well, you can follow you guys can follow me on uh, on Twitter, Daniel E Chang C. Um, right now, I've been doing some videos for Lost Debate, which is um, a social media media outlet that talks about issues, important issues, right now, and tries to go a little bit beyond, you know, the partisan um, lenses and the partisan framing. And uh, it's been great. I'll do some videos for them uh, every week. Just go there, follow them, follow me, and uh, see you soon, Andrew. Yeah, it's another one of our great young voices contributor. Always appreciate chatting with him. Daniel Chan Contreras. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Andrew. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.